Hello and welcome to Hightailing Through History, a history podcast where two sisters get high and surprise each other with a story from history's vault of the weird and the wonderful. I'm Laurel, your older sister. I'm Katie, the younger sister. And we, the sisters, are joined tonight by a man who has many superpowers. He's a teacher. He's a professional comic book historian. He's a fellow podcaster. He's crushing it on TikTok with some amazing comic book history. That's what my friends tell me, but so far it's just them following me. (laughs) I love what you're doing on TikTok. You're amazing. And uh, he's also worked as a researcher for Marvel. Mm-hmm. For a time as a as a writer, having written a couple of comic books as well as a children's novel about luchadores in Mexico, which will be mm-hmm. coming out later this year, twenty twenty four. So yeah. welcome to the Smoke Circle, Kevin Garcia. Very excited. Thank you, <laughs> Kevin Garcia. Sorry, I, I interrupted as you were saying my name. <laughs> uh, thank you. I feel I feel very welcome. Actually, I'm, I'm, I I first noticed you through TikTok, and then mm-hmm. I started following your podcast because of that. Uh, so I, I quite enjoy hearing fun stories about history told by people that just love them, you know? Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's what we really hope that the, those who are with us that spend the time with us listening, that's what they're getting out of it, that they feel, feel the passion that we have for history and just this thing of Our like unqualified passion. Yes. <laughs> unqualified passion. Hey, there's this thing that we learned. Hey, you want to learn about it too? Here we go. Yeah. You know, so there it is. And yeah, I, and honestly, since, Meeting you on TikTok a little over a year ago, that's uh, this episode has been on my radar. Once I found out your areas of knowledge and expertise, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> You're saying that you were tempted to just ask me about my special interests and have me ramble? Oh, oh, the torture. <laughs> it's the worst, the worst time ever. Oh, exactly. man. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I've only been on TikTok uh, actually about a year and a month now mm-hmm. uh, because... I, I suck at social media. You know, I tried, I didn't, I never liked Twitter and now I don't have to use it. Um, I, yeah. uh, I, 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 I'm not great at Instagram. I mean, there's Facebook, but who uses that? I guess my, my students tell me it's for old people. Um, <laughs> and so what I did is I just watched TikTok for a year straight every day during the pandemic. And I was like, I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> and then after a year of watching it and taking mental notes, I was like, all right. So now I've been posting almost daily, you know, and that's like the most I've ever done social media. So and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here and you can hear what I'm saying about you. But Although I appreciate you... that you are doing it for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> Although that helps. Yeah. Um, no, you do. You have really great, really engaging content. Been kind of like learning so much also in preparation for this episode to be like, oh, that's really interesting about this character and the, the time in which this is happening and when this is introduced. So. When you told me about what you wanted to do with this episode, you were like, I want to just kind of touch base on history. And then when you mentioned it, it was like, I'm looking at it, I'm like, this is like all history of comic books. I, we could do that, but that's like a 10 hour episode. It's huge. <laughs> it's huge. Right. I mean, and just so our listeners kind of know what's, what's going to be, what they're in store for today. Uh, we are going to be going through, yeah, like a roughly 150 year history of American comics, which is huge it's and we're definitely going to be dividing this up into two parts but this could be an entire podcast series like it could be like just what one show is about you know forever and ever so i was just gonna say that (laughs) high tailing through comic strips yeah i mean comics i feel like are probably near and dear to all of us that's how (laughs) i even met my partner so i mean Comics, man. Mm-hmm. You know what? Same for me. I'm, I'm on dating apps, and I'd immediately put on their comic book geek at the very top. My friends would be like, "Why would you put it at the top?" I'm like, "I want them to know what they're getting into." Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but but also like you know, I, I'm amazed that this is something that we can hear podcasts about now. And I don't. Yeah. I, I mean that earnestly because I like mm-hmm. I've been reading comics for over 30 years, and it's like just 20 years ago, 15 years ago, this wasn't a topic mm-hmm. that anything but the most specific geeky interest would get into. And now it's just, it's comic culture has become pop culture to an extent. And maybe not the number of readers the publishers would like, but certainly in terms of the stories and interest, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's um, what we kind of want to dig into with this massive topic tonight. We're going to try and focus it in just a little bit. And even though we're going to be looking at uh, a broader history, looking at it through the lens of, um, what does the American comic reflect back on its society? Like, how does America see itself 
in the world? How does America see its population and its society? Um, how has history shaped comics over time? Even a little bit of how comics have influenced how history works, because um, it can go both ways. And so we we're really lucky to have have you on the show and have somebody who like knows a thing or two about that or ten about that and. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And can talk with us and just fill our geek hearts. And it's going to be so fun. And um, So before we get into that, though, uh, would love to first know what we are all um, relaxing with this evening. What, what's your, your drink of choice or your thing tonight? And we'll start with our guest, Kevin. Mm -hmm. oh. Yes, first. Well, <laughs> see, I, I knew I was going to be on the show, so I wanted to make sure I was participating. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't drink i'm not i'm not opposed to drinking i i my friends always be like taste this i'll be like tastes like alcohol um you know <laughs> yeah. uh, the one time i actually kind of enjoyed it was mead but not enough to have more than three sips i was like all right it's fine um yeah. so i'm having a hot chocolate which just feels uh -huh. right this time of year oh yeah and i uh, got my marshmallows in and everything so it's, it's all uh, good oh that's perfect okay. yeah i very nearly had hot chocolate tonight personally but uh i i do have to ask is it like what kind of hot chocolate are we working with there, <laughs> so Mr. Garcia? That, yeah, that's honestly a fair question. Okay. Because it, given the time and the, if I had more milk on hand, I, I could make the proper abuelita, you know, you know, boiled hot chocolate in there and yep. everything, uh, with the melted, you know, chunks of chocolate and everything. Mm -hmm. I have just a packet. I'll be honest. Um, it's fine. You Swiss missing? <laughs> yeah, it does in a pitch pinch. Although I will say, I, I got upset the other day when I when I because I, I was doing curbside and they gave me. Instead of just the chocolate ones, they gave me chocolate and marshmallows. And that sounds okay normally, right? Except they, they put the marshmallows in separate packets. So instead of being six packets of hot chocolate, it was three packets of hot chocolate and three packets of marshmallows. And I'm like, I paid right. the full price for half as many chocolates. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> robbery. I was very upset that time. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking terrible. the stuff, but it does the job. Oh, good. Nice. Well, that sounds like a delicious uh, and perfect way to, to cozy in this it evening. It's awesome. Katie, how about you? Uh, I am drinking the bottle of wine that got left open last night after I finished making dinner uh, of the <laughs> Nero Divola. So here's hoping it's okay. It, I think it's all right. All right. One night will kill it. <laughs> What'd you say? I said recycle and reuse. Yeah. Last night, that's why it's still here. Yeah, you're usually good after a, a day or even two. You know, if, if it's wrapped up, you got like a cork in it or something, you should Oh, it didn't good. last night. It was corkless. That's the problem. So here's oh, hoping. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was laughing when you said you're usually good after a day or two. Because for a second there, I thought you meant if you drink the wine and you're still alive after a day or two, you're good. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, usually. Me too. <laughs> if you're still alive after 24 hours, you're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, you got over the rough patch. You're good. 99 percent chance of survival <laughs> hey i'll take those odds yeah that's all right well, what is your uh your choice of inebriation this evening if oh, there is one thank you for asking i um i decided to go with a, a glass of wine no way a box yeah oh boxed wine yeah so kevin you have a couple of projects that are coming out this year but you've also mm -hmm. have written a comic book as well too and i think uh we should, we should love to know more about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I've uh, I've been a journalist for like uh, over almost 25 years now, actually. Actually, no, 25 years now. What year are we in? Um, over 25 <laughs> years now. Um, and uh, so I've been in publishing for a long time. And of course, I've, I've been a comic book fan for, for years and years and years. Uh, and for about 10 years there, uh, I worked uh, for the official handbook of the Marvel Universe at Marvel. Um, that is the the researching uh, branch, I guess, of Marvel. We'd research and write characters. I could say I've been paid by Disney to read comic books. Uh, so my job would be to make sense of comic book characters' history, which doesn't often make sense if you know about comics. Um, <laughs> and occasionally, occasionally I get to write in character for Marvel where I'd, uh, it's, it's prose, not comic panel work, but I'd write as uh, a woman who had a crush on No More for uh, 80 years. I get to write as Steve Rogers writing letters to the president of the United States, uh, it was Obama at the time, you know, and, and it was cool, but at Marvel, they don't really let you create your own stuff. like, like new stories unless mm -hmm. you publish somewhere else first. So, yeah. um, since the pandemic, I've been working separately either on my own or with small publishers. Um, I did a, a indie comic, uh, called Teowat that was uh, crowdfunded. 
It was, uh, it's about the founding of Tenochtitlan, the, the history of what's, what's commonly called the Aztec Empire. People know a lot about it. We'll get more specific. On, but it wasn't actually called the Aztec Empire, but, but most people no, know it. No, it wasn't. What it's actually called is a whole other story. That's a whole, that's another two, three hour podcast. Um, but my point is, I saw all these stories that were about the, the fall of the empire, about like nothing was important until the Spaniards showed up. And I didn't like that. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do a story about the founding of it. Um, and I, I got one chapter in, it was supposed to be about six, seven chapters when it finishes, but I had a lot of you know personal issues going on that year and it was other things gotten in the way. Um, since then I've been hired uh, to work on a couple other books uh, that I've already written and completed, but they won't come out till this year. And that is a superhero comic from Chispa Comics. Chispa Comics is an imprint of the indie company Scout Comics, uh, but Chispa focuses on Latino, Latina, Latina creators. Um, and I'll be writing a comic book called Coneja for a group called The 13. And Coneja is um, a bunny-powered Latina hero. And just basically, the short description of her was Latina Squirrel Girl. And I was like, yes, I want to write that character. Okay. Uh, so yes. that comes out this year. Um, also this year, I'm working with a company called The Master Public, which is a, a company that works with a bunch of wrestlers and, and luchadores and, and people uh, on both sides of the border, um, and where I'm writing a... A, a children's novel, I guess. It's it's a, it's like a, they call it a middle reader, basically what the first Harry Potter was, which is yeah. chapters and pictures, you know. Uh, and it's about real life luchadores uh, who live in, and work out of Mexico in the U.S. Uh, but I'm writing them as you know preteens fighting folklore monsters from Mexico. So I met a lot of fun with that. Oh my god, and that sounds amazing. Coming up sometime, I, I, my plan is to do it in January, but as soon as I can, I want to announce a crowdfunding project for another solo book because while I'm waiting for these books to be published, I'm like, I need to do something else on my own. <laughs> so working <laughs> on that too. Um, but all that is to say, um, I am a qualified comic book historian. I have other friends who are more qualified than me that have been doing this longer than I have, but um, I, I've interviewed a bunch of creators. I, I know some personally. Uh, they've also interviewed, I, like I said, I worked with Marvel. So that's my bona fides as we go into the history of it all. So like a comic book, how we're setting up this episode this evening, as I mentioned earlier, we're going through with the lens of like the reflection of comics and American history and how these things are going together. Uh, And so like a comic book, we, the sisters, are going to be setting up um, the panels. Uh, There we go on the page. (laughs) Uh, We'll be providing the backdrop, the structure, the history of what is happening in America at this time you know, throughout our history here. And then Kevin is going to be filling it all in in, in beautiful color or black and white, whichever he chooses. <laughs> well, <laughs> the full so you are the all powerful narrator and I'm just yeah. the hapless character moving along. <laughs> I'll take it. What I want to do is start with like where I feel like the first drop in the bucket is in terms of the history of comics and take a panned out big picture here for a second. Um, and this is kind of where I, I'm going to put the pin in the beginning of, of comics. There are going to be people much smarter than I am who are going to say, no, it's this and no, it's that. But this is where this is where you're going to hear it here on High Tailing Through History. So we're not doing cave paintings. We're <laughs> I mean, starting we, it here. We can get yeah. into the cave paintings and hieroglyphics. <laughs> we could. The, the, the Mayans, you know, written. Okay. Exactly. And that's the mm-hmm. thing you'll find in cultures oh, yeah. all over time who have had this know, medium, if you will, air quotes mm-hmm. there, of like having pictures to tell their story and their history. Kind of fast forward a little bit towards the end of the 19th century. And I'm going to point it to Thomas Nast, who was a political cartoonist and editorial cartoonist. We can credit Nast with what we know as the image of Uncle Sam, Santa Claus, um, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican parties, respectively. He's, He's created a lot of imagery that is really cemented into our American culture and society. I mean, and, and he's not the only person, of course, that was doing political cartoons. We see, you know, other people doing it both in America and in Europe, mainly in, in Britain. But uh, but he's he's the name when we get to American illustrations here. And he would use the, you know, the power of the pen and his illustrations to go against political and industrial corruption, uh, to go against the KKK, racial segregation, he was also pro-Chinese immigration, which was not a popular stance at that time. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, 
he would use his illustrations to, to point these things out, you know, and to, to create commentary on them. He also, along with that, um, upheld racial and cultural stereotypes, which were really it's, cemented during that time. It's yeah. of the time. Too. Mm-hmm. It's, right. it's one of those things where you don't want to defend it. Um, it's one of those things where even people who are trying to be what we would consider progressive mm-hmm. are still going to be repeating things. And you're, you're going to see this throughout uh, comic books as an example of American history. You're going to see it throughout comic books story. Uh, right. Thomas Nast wasn't the first to do political cartoons. I think one of the big ones that everybody knows is, is gerrymandering. You know, mm-hmm. that term came from a, a political cartoon almost a hundred years before Thomas Nast. But before him, political cartoons were more of just like supplemental to stories. It was more of just like, you know, art that would be this and sometimes kind of demonstrating this. And a lot of his were like, no, I'm telling you the whole story in the comic. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really have a settled, uh, a lot of the things we think of as comics, uh, like like ideas like the word balloons or like that, those weren't settled for a long time. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a comic that I love, I want people to seek out, called Cursed Pirate Girl. And the whole comic is drawn to look like it was done during the time period of, say, Thomas Nast. So when people have word balloons, it looks like scrolls and whatever else it might have been at that time. It looks really cool. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you know, it's really nice. And the artist is just astounding what he could do with just pen and ink. He doesn't do any color. Mm. But but comics as as a as a form in, in newspapers, essentially, in magazines, mm-hmm. evolved uh, really hitting what we would consider to be a comic book character by the time you get to Richard Outcult's uh, The Yellow Kid. Um, Yellow Kid in, in yes. Hogan's Alley was the first time you really had an ongoing character uh, where it was still technically political cartoons, but it was kind of like the Huckleberry Finn of political cartoons uh, in that Huckleberry Finn was a, a simple-minded, uneducated kid commenting on parts of America. Basically, the whole book was just about making fun of racists, but you're getting mm-hmm. through a kid who doesn't understand what he's looking at. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what the yellow kid was, only it's not that he doesn't understand, it's that he doesn't care to understand. So he'd be making fun of it as it happens. And because word balloons weren't a thing yet, every time they were going to say something from the yellow kid, it showed up on his shirt. So it looked like he was wearing a shirt with a message on it each time. And it was those are his thoughts coming out, essentially. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that yellow kid is often called the first comic strip character. But he's also the origin of the word comic book mm-hmm. because his comics got so successful and popular that they collected them in book form and literally labeled it comic book. So that's the first time those two words showed up together in print, far as we know, was with the Yellow Kid. Um, so we have our, our first true comics with Thomas Nast. We have our first true character with the Yellow Kid and our first actual comic book with the Yellow Kid. Um, being these little snot-nosed kids in New York alleys causing trouble, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that kind of set up. By the way, I really love that you mentioned the the attacking of groups that would become the KKK with Thomas Nast because that's going to become relevant again post World War II as we move forward. So mm-hmm. put a pin in that. Pin there we go. Pin that panel. And and at that time too, you know, looking at the history of America at the turn of the 20th century. There are a lot of immigrants coming over. And so when you have these media giants like um, William Randolph Hearst and um, Joseph Pulitzer with their both newspapers. Of whom, both of whom uh, published The Yellow Kid at one point or another. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I mean, they're like, well, we <laughs> comics, having comics in our newspapers, having a comic strip helps to get more newspapers bought and or sold, I should say, and people reading them and getting them circulating more. And and so they really started to to lean into that more. And that's why exactly as you said there with the yellow kid, we're seeing now comic strips and characters and that growth. And um I would say like between like approximately like nineteen ten to nineteen forty sort of area era, we uh there's the heroes are there, would you say? The heroes are there, but yeah. they're not like superheroes, right? Well so that's where I really personally would start the origin of the American comic book as we think of it. And I want to specify mm-hmm. American comic book because um, obviously we talk about manga and manhwa and things like that. There's a whole other different evolution for that. Um, uh, European comics are technically, you know, branched off of American comics, but they went a whole other direction. So while they do have superhero comics over there, I think most European comics that are successful ongoing are more closer to what we might think of as like vertigo comics or, or those mm-hmm. kind of things. 
uh, and then Latin American comics, those go whole other directions as well. But the American comics, it's the superhero, right? Yeah. And um, it, around the the late 1800s and the early 1900s, um, outside of words and pictures of comics, you have the pulp hero. And these are, you know, dime novels or penny dreadfuls or, or uh, um, you know, pulp, whatever you want to call it, depending on the time period. But these were magazines published in the cheapest possible paper and they would pay very little to the writers and they, and and most pulp stories would have an art thing to go with it so it was still words and pictures it just wasn't a comic book yet and that's where you get characters like uh um frank reed uh, jr who's basically like harry potter of his day but would invent things you know and you'd get the uh, things like uh tom swift who I, I have a lot of tom swift books on the shelf actually and then later on stuff like uh, Doc Savage, who was basically the quintessential superhero. Um, and also there's famously a book called Gladiator, which was about a guy who was just, his body was trained to be perfect and be more than any human could be. And these kinds of ideas of these larger than life heroes uh, bled into the, back into the comics. And then you get characters like Mandrake the Magician or, or Popeye, who was originally just a joke in uh, the, the Thimble Theater comic, uh, and he's going to be so popular he took over. And here's this guy who's a normal everyday sailor who could throw an aircraft carrier because why not? Um, and then you get characters like the Phantom, who's really the first costumed hero, uh, and he predates uh, Superman. But he was um, he, he was the protector of Africa for many generations. His family protected Africa. Of course, they're all white because it, it was the 30s. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, steps. So <laughs> so that would bleed back into comics. So, so like, for example, DC Comics, or what we think of today as DC Comics, when they started publishing comics, they published other things earlier, but when they started publishing comics, it was primarily reprints of newspaper comics. Uh, and then when they did original comics, they would be, all right, well, let's do some mystery comics or some adventure comics, some cowboy comics. And then here come these two guys, Siegel and Shuster, that are like, we have this idea. Can we do it? And um, it got passed over several times. Their, their gold life, as most artists of that era, was to make a comic strip. Nobody wanted to do a comic book. So their hope was, hey, if this comic book sells a little bit, maybe we can sell it as a strip later and get some real money. Um, so they sold it to DC as a, uh, as a comic book. They chopped up their initials, their comic strips, and made it a little bit shorter, um, and they published it, and it um, sold like gangbusters. And, yeah. uh, and what I like to say is that, that uh, Marvel, or what we think of as Marvel, kind of started around that time as well. A lot of people will tell you they were called timely comics in the 40s. That is both true and not true um, because uh, um, Martin Goodman, the, the publisher, he, he had like 20 different names for his company depending on what month it was. It's just more often than not, you saw the word timely on the cover, so we'll call them <laughs> timely comics. Um, but before he was doing comics, he was doing pulp magazines. And he would have, and I actually have a lot of these in the other room over there, a lot of pulp comics, pulp magazines rather, that were published by Goodman before Marvel was created. And he saw the success that was happening with Superman. And he just goes to his writers and artists and says, okay, you've been doing more words and he's been doing very little pictures. I need you to swap. <laughs> and so Jack Kirby was originally drawing pulp scripts, uh, pulp little illustrations rather, for people's scripts. And then they would swap out and, okay, we're now going to have your art be more in the pages and the writers do less stuff essentially hmm. um, just because he wanted to jump on the bandwagon of what was selling. Um, and, uh, and the other thing to understand about this time period I mentioned the idea of, of, uh, of ownership, copyright, public domain comes up a bit. That didn't really mean anything back then. I mean, that was in the yeah. law, but they played fast and loose with it. So you'd find characters published by one company and another company and nobody really cared who owned it at the time. And now looking back on it, they're like, no, wait, that was us, you know, yeah. but at the time, nobody. Cared. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So I say all this to say, that there's a, a weird evolution that kind of converges between the comic strip characters like Yellow Kid and the pulp characters like Doc Savage to make the superhero that we know today. You know, speaking of of the superhero, the rise of the superhero and, and Superman, I do want to read a little excerpt from the Saturday Evening Post interview with one of Superman's co-creators, Joe Schuster. Mm -hmm. He says, I am lying in bed counting sheep when all of a sudden it hits me. I conceive a character like Samson, Hercules, and all the strong men I have ever heard tell of rolled into one, only more so. I hop right out of bed and write this down. And then I go back and think some more for about two hours and get up again and write that down. This goes on all night at two-hour intervals until in the morning I have a complete script. 
Zuko goes on to explain. As a high school student, I had crushes on several attractive girls who either didn't know I existed or didn't care that I existed. It occurred to me, what if I was real terrific? What if I had something special going for me, like jumping over buildings or throwing cars around or something like that? Then maybe they would notice me. And that was an excerpt I got from my source that I read. It was this really thick book called American Comics, A History by Jeremy Dauber. You know what? It's going to sound to modern ears like... (laughs) Uh, it was essentially a, an incel creation. And I want to say that that's not far from the truth. Um, not to say that about, about uh, Jerry Siegel, because, you know, he happily married later on, all, all kinds of stuff like that. But if you read the early stories involving Clark and Lois before they started bringing on other writers and artists, that's all it was. It was just mm-hmm. Lois being as mean as she possibly could to Clark. And then Clark going, okay, Lois, sure. And then Superman showing up and she'd be like, oh, I'm going to be next to you all the time. And it's just, it was literally just a a male fantasy is what it was. The idea that the mean girl would like you if she knew who you really were inside. Also, I do Um, want to point out that there wasn't a big distinction between Clark and and, uh, Superman. They obviously were different. One acted like they didn't know what the other one did. But in terms of personality, uh, you know, the whole joke about they just took off the glasses, they would look the same. It's basically the way they were drawn back then. It wasn't until later on, especially after interpretations like Christopher Reeve, where they would really push the difference between the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so modern day artists will really emphasize the difference. But back then it was just, okay, Lois, that's what you think. Wink at the camera, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, she was mean, like oh. hardcore mean to him. Oh, no. um, But what's really also interesting is that when you see the early uh, inspirations of like the design of her and stuff and and, and you see like there's like there's a sketch I've seen that's him having drawn one of his classmates, not not him, the the Joe Shuster, having drawn the the classmate there. Um, And it's just gorgeous. You know, this this beautiful pencil sketch and it looks like Lois Lane. Like it looks like what you imagine a 1940s Lois Lane would look like. So what about, uh, like, where did, I mean, we know that Superman kind of came up in, in their heads, you know, as as this superpowered figure. But what, I guess, what what's the change there between the heroes like the Phantom and, and Popeye and Dick Tracy so, to now Superman? You started this discussion by saying you wanted to look at how comic books kind of reflect the American culture through time and kind of like mm-hmm. as a view of history. And I feel like that's, extremely evident here um so the phantom i already mentioned predates superman a little bit and i already mentioned that he is literally a multi-generational hero in africa and that definitely you know reflects this this colonialism ideal you know of Mm -hmm. like we are the ones bringing peace to a continent and it's exactly what that was Mm -hmm. um but with superman um when they originally wrote a couple superman stories uh, early before we went to dc it wasn't what we think of today. It wasn't like it just showed up exactly like that. It, it changed. But when it did get published, the early issues of Superman were reflecting this depression era world in which these two came of age. So you have in the first like five issues of action comics, Superman going after a wife beater, Superman going after a corrupt politician, Superman, uh, you know, going after the mob, but always in ways that are about protecting the common man who, and I use that term gender neutrally uh, of the time period, um, that was not feeling that protection. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of going after a wife beater, literally Superman says, how do you like it? And then throws the guy through a wall, you know? So it was um, everybody who's like, you know, comic books are too political nowadays. Oh, they've always been political. You know, mm-hmm. it was about the fact that they were corrupt politicians. And it's a good thing Superman told us they're corrupt politicians, so we don't have those anymore. <laughs> Maybe not. Side eye, side eye. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. And and when Superman's created, it's at the end of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, like you said, like really sticking up for the common man and their, their you know, common problems. Uh, and then also, for the most part, the United States has a general attitude of is- isolationism with yeah. the depression going on, the Great Depression going on, coming out of World War One, like there are problems going on in, in Europe in the late 30s. We know this. Um, particularly in Germany, but uh, the rest of the, the, the nation, America was like, you know what, let's not get involved in anybody else's issues right now. Let's just focus on home. 
And we'll see, <laughs> we'll see also how, you know, Superman initially reflected those sentiments of isolation, isolationism for a short period of time. But then what happens? <laughs> well, I will say most comics, especially the more successful ones like DC, mm-hmm. were taking kind of a standoffish approach, not so much an isolationist approach, so much as a, we are, they, they were definitely addressing political issues, just they weren't naming it. Mm-hmm. So Superman mm-hmm. very rarely got involved with things actually involving a German analog, whereas a lot of other DC characters would, especially Wonder Woman later on. Um, but but where that change really took off, I think, is with Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happened is uh, Martin Goodman, you know, publishes Marvel Comics. And, and the first issue has Namor the Submariner, uh, who I call Marvel's first superhero, Marvel's first supervillain. He is actually the first character to fly under his own power because Superman originally can only jump tall buildings. Um, and also introduces the original Human Torch, who is not Johnny Storm, but an android. Um, and uh, and so these guys are, are great, and they do interesting things. They're definitely anti-heroes in the truest meaning of that word. I think a lot of people misunderstand that meaning. It doesn't mean a hero who kills people. It means a hero who doesn't have the features of a hero. Mm-hmm. And those two were definitely that. Um, and then as the war is picking up in Europe, a lot of people in the U.S. are isolationist. And they're saying flat out, um, we should not get involved. And that uh, that extended to their fictional characters. Well, Martin Goodman, and there's famously a little comic strip that was drawn in the 40s saying, this is how Martin Goodman came up with the idea. And, and, and I, it's one of my favorite little comic strips because it's very rarely do you see a behind the scenes that far back. And it uh, shows Martin Goodman kind of circ- pacing in the office there at Timely Comics and going, what can I do? What should I do? There is something I should do. And he goes, I've got it. I will have our heroes fight the Nazis. And so while Marvel continued to use some German analogs, many characters just flat out punched Nazis, you know, <laughs> uh, famously, of course, Captain America, which yeah. came out a, a year to the month before Pearl Harbor. And when Captain America came out with um, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon doing the writing and art, um, the cover showed Hitler being punched. And every issue was about how evil or stupid the Nazis were and about how Americans are going to overcome them. And very famously, the uh, this got uh, flack to Marvel. They got feedback, mm-hmm. negative feedback. Um, there was one incident, which is often repeated, and I see no reason to believe that it's not true, in which somebody called Marvel offices directly and said, you know, how dare you guys do this? You have no right to present them as bad guys. Um, you know, I, I will I will show me this the artist who's doing it right now. I'll beat him up. Mm-hmm. And then Jack Kirby, who heard about this phone call, goes, tell him to wait down there. I'll be right there. Yeah. And then runs downstairs, Jack Kirby. <laughs> and there was nobody to punch because uh, yep. the guy had run off by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 that's just everything about Jack Kirby there. And mm-hmm. by the way, a little aside, since uh, um, we're not talking about Stan Lee's whole life story or whatever, but. Stan Lee, you know, didn't create Marvel Comics. Uh, he was literally the coffee boy at this time. Uh, he got the job because of his uncle through marriage who, who got him the job. And his job was, so nepotism for the whim. Um, and his job was literally just go get supplies. The mm-hmm. first time he was allowed to write something was in Captain America 3. And it was a text story because every comic in the 40s had text stories as a means of getting a lower postage rate. It's, it's a whole technical thing. Um, and, and, and he does have the distinction of being the first time somebody described Captain America throwing his mighty shield. So technically that happened in his story, although obviously the planning wasn't there yet, but he wrote it. So it's there. Um, so yeah, so once Marvel's doing that and then, uh, the company that will become DC comics, they were not called that there was American comics and they were national comics. Um, they started doing that as well, largely with, with not Superman or Batman, but with Wonder Woman and with other smaller characters, that were still significant, but they were there. Um, Sequel and Shuster themselves have done interviews where they said they, they shied away from it because they felt as much as they wanted Superman to do it, they would see there'd be no war. Like he would just fix it. And they even did a non-canon comic for a magazine once that showed, and this was during the time in which uh, the Soviet Union had, had signed a treaty with, with Germany, showed Superman going to Germany and Russia picking up uh, Hitler and Stalin and saying, you guys better stop this. And 
then it said how Superman would end the war is what it was called. Uh, and, and it was just a little, you know, throwaway non-canon, but they're like, this is why we don't do it. With Superman. Mm-hmm. And so, so it was definitely part of the story, but even in comics where world war two did not show up, it was still, um, it was still, it was everywhere. It was, it was in the zeitgeist, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't mind, I want to get off on a tangent here for a second. Sure. If we're talking about comics of the forties, I already mentioned earlier with the phantom, um, you can't not address racism. Uh, I've mostly been mentioning Nazis. Um, when they showed Germans, occasionally they'd be shown with, with what you could consider to be racial ethnic stereotypes, but generally speaking, they were just bad guys. But when you'd have Japanese soldiers, that was something. Mm-hmm. Um, Batman showed up in Detective Comics, what, 27, I think? I'm a Marvel guy, not a DC yeah. guy. Nope, and, you're right. Um, okay, good. <laughs> you're right. Um, but Detective Comics number one famously has a, 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 a essentially a yellow peril a bad guy on it, which is just a racist image uh, about Chinese immigrants, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, And then when the war happened, all that racism shifted from China to Japan. Um, and, but it was the same, same racism. And then when it, it, it gets, um, more pervasive, I guess I was gonna say worse, but that's mm, the whole thing myself when it comes to African-American and black characters. Um, I always tell people Captain America has a sidekick named Bucky, right? Mm-hmm. Did you know Bucky had a sidekick? Bucky had, Bucky had a team of sidekicks. Um, and, um, there were a team of young boys called the young allies. And one of them was black and his name was whitewash Jones. And in every comic I've read with Whitewash Jones in it, I would see one of two things. Either he was drawn as racistly as you could imagine, but written like a normal human being, or drawn like a normal teenage boy like everybody else, but then written as racistly as you can imagine. So I have not found a comic where he was, neither one was bad. Um, but uh, but yeah, and Marvel's acknowledged <laughs> this in, in, in modern comics where they've They've had more recent comics featuring him and, and even a comic where he's reading his own comic and going, why would they draw me this way? And mm-hmm. one of his teammates is like, oh, aren't you just happy you're published? He's like, no, not like this. You know, so, so it's, they've addressed it over the years, but it's just something that needs to be addressed because if you're reflecting American history, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not that there weren't black creators because were, there were black creators, but creators of color um, – well, first of all, you know, back in those days, you wouldn't see what somebody looks like. So you don't have to tell anybody. Uh, but they were behind the scenes. They were working there in Marvel and DC and other places. But they were not really allowed to create black characters or other characters of color. Um, there's an, uh, a character from a smaller publisher called the Green Turtle. Um, and he was created by a Chinese-American creator. And he purposely wanted his character to be fighting against the, the, the Chinese uh, communist forces that were taking over the country at the time and have him be a Chinese hero. And the editors were like, no, he, he has to be a white guy. So he said, fine, I'm just going to have him never take off his mask. Um, and then had the sidekick be, because the sidekicks were allowed to be Chinese. So the sidekick mm-hmm. was Chinese, so it worked out. Um, and then there's another co- publisher that published a character called The Bronze Man. And um, he was created by an African-American creator and he wanted a, a black hero. And this was a, a, a war veteran who got his face injured in the war and so he had to wear a bronze mask covering his face. And the idea was, okay, look, he's black, but he's wearing a bronze mask. So you can't tell anyway. Well, uh, it's very clear if you read the first couple issues that an editor knew what he was trying to do and changed it. And they had another artist fix it because in the comic, there is no mask. He's just a white guy. So, so mm-hmm. the dialogues, the, the narration says, you know, wearing his bronze mask, but it's just a white guy's face. There's no mask there at all. Um, mm-hmm. So bronze man was intended to be a black guy. And, and there was one comic in the 40s that was published by, by an all-black uh, creative team, and that was uh, all-Negro comics. It was only one issue, but it, it did it – was, the idea was to respond to all that. And so mm-hmm. that's out there. Um, I, I just felt like it's very important to address that as we are looking at this. It's not all just, hey, America didn't want to get in the war, and they did want to get in the war. It's also the other parts of it. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out because that was actually something I wanted to to bring up and talk about, like these sort of generalized uh, racial stereotypes, and especially you know in the in the war. You know, I, I was uh, the first kind of example that comes to my mind is I think it's called the Eleventh Hour. It's a Superman 
movie, like a cartoon. It was pretty early in the Superman. Oh, oh you mean the, the Max Fleischer cartoons? Yeah, it was probably, that's probably what it was. Yeah, where he goes over to Japan with uh, Lois Lane. And yeah, there's actually one that has has a racial slur in the title of the comic, of, the, of the cartoon. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, the, the Max Fleischer cartoons are, that aside, beautiful works of art. Although I will say that those more racist interpretations weren't by Max Fleischer. Um, because Max Fleischer did uh, of the 11 or so cartoons, he did like the first seven. I don't, I, I don't remember the numbers. Um, and he's the one, the first one who said, Hey, Superman should fly, you know, instead of having him jump constantly, I'd rather have him just turn midair and go a different direction. And can I do that? And the comic people were like, sure. So now Superman can fly now. <laughs> um, but then it turns out his animation process was too expensive. So the studio dropped him brought in cheaper animators and said, let's do some war propaganda. And that's where you get the racist stuff in the cartoons. Mm-hmm. So while it is part of the Max Fleischer cartoons, Max Fleischer didn't do those actual episodes. Uh, so yeah, that did happen. That would suck to have your name on that. When you didn't do it, I'd be like, Shit. yeah, I didn't see all of it. I just was thinking of just that one. Cause I was thinking in terms of how it was used in, in war propaganda, but uh, yeah, it's good to know. Thank you very much for, making that distinction for us. Well, yeah. you know what? If I can go back to that pin I said earlier mm-hmm. for after the war. Sure. Um, so to kind of give Superman some, some to recuperate his image a little bit, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Superman was popular in the, in the comics. He was popular in the newspaper strips. Jerry and Joe were so happy that they could do Superman comics. They actually were able to expand. But like, so like the, the first time we really get to see Krypton is in the newspapers. Before they were in the mm-hmm. comics, you get to see Dorel and Lara on Krypton and their day-to-day life in the comics and newspaper strips. But he was also in radio plays and uh, and movie serials, which were basically like TV shows before there was TV. And Superman, the radio show, was extremely popular yeah. uh, to the point that Kryptonite originated in the radio play. Jimmy Olsen originated in the radio play. You know, a lot of stuff we think of came from outside the comics. But... There was this uh, researcher who had been researching the Ku Klux Klan, and he found a whole bunch of stuff about all of the ways that their organization worked and was working in this post-World War II America. And he really wanted to publish this as as an expose, and no publisher wanted to take it. Um, And so then he tried going to other people to take it, and nobody wanted to to do this because it was just feathers they didn't want to ruffle. But it turns out he had a friend who was working on the Superman radio show. And the friend says, why don't I just have Superman beat them up? And he's like, yes. So do that. The writers of Superman. And there's literally multiple episodes of the radio show where Bud Collier as Superman is uncovering the secrets of the Ku Klux Klan, naming them the actual terms and all that they used, how their, their group operated how they work within local police departments, all this stuff. He was saying it as a reporter and as Superman. And it caused a backlash against the KKK because people were like, mom, is this real? And, mm-hmm. and they would start passing it on and hearing it. And, and it actually achieved the job of getting the word out there in a way that this, this researcher was not able to do in traditional newspapers. And what I really love is there you can you can read this now in a new comic? I say new came out uh, about what ten years ago? No, three years ago. <laughs> I have no sense of the time. Anything, <laughs> anything, before, anything before the pandemic is ten years ago. Um, same, yeah, uh, pretty much. Yeah. the clan by by Jean Lung Yang. He's the the guy that did American Born Chinese, a very very uh, popular uh, graphic novel, and uh, he basically takes that original story, serializes it and adds a, a, a family in there, like a Chinese American family that can learn more about this as well as it's happening. And it's, it's a really, really great comic. Um, it's just, it's just one of those parts of history that's neat, you know, where there was like, this is a superhero that in theory is fighting metaphorical bad guys, but then you could use him, you not in the comic books, but in the radio, but you could use him to fight the real bad guys. And that's beautiful. That is. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. By the way, a little yeah. fun aside, Jane uh, uh, Lin Yang uh, also wrote some Superman comics. And to give you an idea of how 
much and little the industry has changed. After American Born Chinese was such a massive success, uh, DC approached him and said, would you like to write Superman? He said, I'd love to. And they say, good, you're going to write the Chinese Superman. He goes, what? Um, I just want to write Superman. And they're like, no, we, we want to do a Chinese Superman. And if you don't write it, I guess we can find somebody else to write it. And essentially he's like, okay, I'll write it if I can write it my way. And it is a critically acclaimed comic. It's really good about a Superman born and, and living in China. But he uses that comic to address a lot of the racism that showed up in the comics over the years. So pretty much all of these yellow parable characters that showed up in comics over the decades get revisited through his comic so he can either reevaluate them, repudiate them, or maybe rehabilitate them as characters. Um, Including, I want to point out, that that cover guy from Detectives Comics number one. He shows up in that comic. And and I I think that's a beautiful way to get, I was going to say revenge, that doesn't feel right, but just a beautiful way to get things done right. Yes. yes, but that's perfect, though, and I really appreciate that addition to you know our understanding of comics in history, history of comics, because in, as it is such a huge thing that we're looking at here, but looking through that lens of like how you know the reflection of how America is kind of viewing members of its society and, and its population as a whole, and uh, I I love that it, there were some wrongs that have been righted through comics and trying to make those corrections. I love that. Well, you know, that's the whole reason Wonder Woman exists. Yeah. So I'm going to do a story. Uh, I'm going to do an episode on Wonder Woman at some point and her creation, because I think that story is really fascinating. Um, so stick stick around, folks. We're going to be doing, <laughs> doing that. Sometime that's in the one that Laurel's really looked forward to. She's Yeah. She's probably one of my favorite characters. Her and... Uh, like Jean Grey, I think were like they're like the two comics mm-hmm. I first comics I was starting to read. You know, yeah, was I mean, the I, Dark Phoenix Saga. And very then, powerful characters. Yeah, and Wonder Woman. I just love them both so much. Um, so, yeah. I, well, you know what? Let's let's continue with then post World War II because this is a huge transition in history, like American history, but then also mm-hmm. American comics too. And um, just to to set the panel here, set the frame. Um, Post-World War II, America is just trying to have some sort of return to normalcy, but some air quotes around that, like whatever normal is now post-World War II. And there were a lot of these underlying stresses that bubbled out uh, in, into comics. For some Americans, some family members didn't come home. Some loved ones didn't come home. Um, those who did come home are trying to like, mentally, physically, psychologically heal and cope and trying to pick up their life again back home. Um, women who might've had um, different jobs outside of their homes or maybe careers of sorts um, were going back to, well, frequently going back to like a home or a family-based role. There's the baby boom. So there's a lot of this like white picket fence, huzzah America, um, sort of like leave it to beaver feel like veneer. <laughs> It is, the, it is the atomic family. It is, it's the America we want to believe existed. Yes. Yes. You know what's that's really exactly funny? Right. The yeah. first thing that comes to mind for me anyway, and this might just be my age. Uh, when I think of like the 1950s, I think of Edward Scissorhands before anything else. <laughs> no, I, I think that's fully accurate. I mean, they're, they're, the Edward Scissorhands is kind of aping a 1960s America in, hmm. in, in the late 80s, early 90s, but it's still the hmm. same idea of this ideal of what they thought America was just not here, but somebody else has this. It's definitely yeah. what America is somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you see a lot of that in the comics as well, but, but both, you know, you talk about like trying to, to come back from the war, you, the ones that are successful do a couple different things. Um, the ones that tried to be the same superhero comics that they were before the, during the war didn't really last. Uh, Captain America stuck around for a few more years. They tried to do a revival in 53. Didn't do very well. Um, the, the one that was actually the most successful for Marvel was No More. Uh, his comics continued all the way to the late 40s and actually had almost uh, over a year of comics in the 50s, which is more than any of the other Marvel superheroes did. Um, Superman, Batman, and also to an extent Wonder Woman all did fine in this era because they were just staples of Americana at that point. Um, but for the other comics they were trying to reach different feelings. So there were war comics that would look back at the, the heroes of World War II and really overemphasize those stories. 
Uh, there were Westerns, which became very, very popular at the 50s. Not, I mean, this was throughout all of American pop culture at the time because of the you know, TV, uh, burgeoning TV shows and the, and the movies and all that kind of stuff. Um, which, which honestly, I would consider an extension of the war comics, where it's those kinds of things. Um, they were um, essentially the silly animal comics, where the, the 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 ones that were done to be comedy, um, and then there were those that would try to find other escapes. So, for example, uh, one of the the later superheroes that still stuck around a bit after the war is Phantom Lady, who is an example of what's called good girl art, and that is basically overly sexualized drawings, but without being actually X-rated, um, of being a superhero. And uh, the top artist for her was actually a, a, a black artist named Matt Baker. And and um, that, obviously they wouldn't tell the readers that. Um, but he was one of the greatest artists of that time period. Um, and then the other big hit uh, from this time is horror uh, and suspense. Mm. Because, again, that's part of that escapism. You... you People who come, came back from the war or kids who hear about it constantly, they want to know about the bloody stuff, you know? So there were crime comics and they were, um, you know, they were horror comics. Uh, you guys know Tales from the Crypt, of course, right? Mm-hmm. That started out uh, as uh, EC Comics, which originally was educational comics, um, and that was a Christian comic book company. But when the dad passed it on to the son, the son's like, I'm making horror. And so he did a <laughs> bunch of horror comics. And, and they were the most yeah. gruesome, like for the sake of gruesome comics that you could imagine, wow. you know, decapitated heads, having conversations with people, all mm-hmm. kinds of just craziness. Um, and a lot of very gory stuff. Um, yeah. And these were some of the, the biggest sellers of the 50s. Now, mind you, when I say sellers, um, comics have never sold as well as they did during the war years. Uh, but, but they were still, you know, moderately very popular. Um, where just about every kid in America read at least one comic book. I also want to point out, this is also the period that gives us romance comics, comics uh, that were specifically aimed at girls. And um, one of the the first true romance comics was created by Jack Kirby. Uh, you know, so that's kind of neat too. Um, and and so, so we got those, Young Romance, that one. And, um, and that brings us to the mid-50s, where... If you're going to talk about what's happening to the world happens to comics, something major happened in the mid '50s to comics that completely reflects what is happening in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I keep jumping topics, so I was going to pause. No, that is perfect. I'm like leaning in. I'm like, tell us. I know we're <laughs> all like ready. ready. We're ready. Like, <laughs> I know exactly it. what you're going to say. <laughs> so there's this. So there's this doctor, psychologist named Frederick Wortham, mm-hmm. and he is actually on balance, a very good person. Um, he spent a lot of his career, for example, fighting uh, against segregation, saying that this is harmful to all children. And he would bring evidence of this at courts and stuff. Um, but at one point, he decided to make his career about comic books. And specifically, to understand what's happening, I actually read his, I read the book cover to cover. Uh, his book's called Seduction of the Innocent. Um, and when I ordered it through interlibrary loan, I was just like, how much you want to bet this comes from a Christian library? Sure enough, stamped on the inside. Anyway, um, there you go. But, uh, but, but in his book, he studied uh, about a dozen or a couple dozen children who were described in the book as being some of the most disturbed children in America. These are kids who um, like hurt family members. These are kids who did violent crimes. These are kids who had what, what might be considered at the time psychotic breaks or whatever. And he noticed that all of these kids read comics. So he came to the conclusion that if all of these disturbed children, because remember, he's one of the top psychologists in the country. They sent him the disturbed kids. Um, you know, yeah. of all these disturbed kids read comics. That must mean that's the, the common denominator. Comics made them evil. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, I just said a second ago, just about every kid in America read comics. So if you grabbed any 12 kids, they were probably reading comics. Um, But I mean, I could still recite to you some of the, some of the specific situations they are pretty disturbing, but he would take this and go further and be like, let me show you how the comics disturbed children. And they would show a panel of like uh, a woman with her leg tied to a box and a hot poker going, going toward her legs. And it's like, well, you know where this poker is going to go next. 
And it's like, it's very, very descriptive. Okay, well, easy comics were very, very gross. So that's an easy target. But then he also said like, Batman and Robin are the wish dream of two homosexuals because they are always happy together. Mm. And it's like, uh, hmm, okay. Um, Wonder Woman, well, I mean, okay, fair. Wonder Woman, to be fair, is Wonder Woman. But yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the bondage stuff was actually in Wonder Woman. But then he would even say stuff like there's, there's a panel where it shows the bicep of some hero zoomed in and there's a shading in a triangular pattern of the muscle. And it said, dirty drawings are there for children who know where to look as if what? kids are going to just like zoom in on that little bicep and be like, Oh, Hey, I know what that looks like. Um, you know, so, so this book came out Uh-oh. and it is not like I read it. There's nothing in here that would pass a psychology publication today. You know, um, mm-hmm. it was just, it was bunk, yeah. but it was popular. Parents read it. They were very, very scared for their children. Um, there were actually public bonfires of comic book burnings throughout the country, uh, you know, that happened. Um, and just like with the movie industry a few years earlier with the Hayes Code, the comic book industry said, oh, we, we, we can manage ourselves. We can manage ourselves. So they created the Comics Code Authority to essentially censor comics. And that was the, pretty much the death knell for EC. It struggled on for a bit longer, but they could never do what they used to do. Um, and, and for people like Marvel, they, they weren't doing anything that extreme anyway. It wasn't a big change. But now you couldn't show the undead, so no vampires or zombies. Um, you couldn't show uh, drugs in any way. So this is way before just, just say no, but you couldn't even show that, no drugs. You couldn't show any crime unless the people were to be punished appropriately for it at the end of the story, you know, um, and a whole bunch of other things. Nothing of sexual perversions, whatever that may mean, um, and all this kind of stuff. And the reason I say this reflects America is because while I'm only looking at comics here, Anybody that knows about American history says, well, the 50s, there was the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. There was the blacklisting in Hollywood. Uh, there were people who were being outed for being gay in tabloids. Uh, there were, you know, all kinds of things uh, where this stuff was just not allowed. And, and to give you an idea of how this affected the comics. So EC continued to try to publish. And one of the, the sci-fi books that was going to be put out around this time um, got all these notes back from the censors saying, you can't publish it, change this, this, and this. And it is a story of an astronaut, you know, full, full well, it's armor, it's a full suit, you know, you can't see the guy's face or anything, but full suit of, suit of space suit. Keep wanting to say armor. Um, and he <laughs> space <armor>. goes to <laughs> a new planet. Right. And this planet has robots all over it. And the robots are very excited to get the person from Earth. And they're saying, oh, thank you so much for coming. We'd love to join your federation of planets. Uh, let me show you around our society so that we can join your greater federation of all of these, these planets that, that humanity is leading. And the, the, so the, the human astronauts going around with them is, all right, show me what you got. We got this and this. And, and, and the orange ro- robot's like, look at this, look at this, look at this. And eventually the human goes, what about those blue robots? I keep seeing them over there, but you haven't introduced me to any of them yet. And he goes, oh, those are just the blues. You know, they're, they're no good. Don't worry about them. This is an orange society. So, so honestly, they're not anything that's important. And the astronaut says, if that's something that is a defining feature of your society, we cannot let you join us. Once you've evolved, let us know. What, what are you talking about? They're just the blues. And, and uh, so he leaves. And as he goes, the astronaut gets onto his ship, takes off his helmet, and he's a black man. And the narration, I mean, it's, it's over the top. It describes the sweat on his face is looking like stars in the sky. It's, it's a bit over the top. But the notes from the censors was, could you just at least make him white? What? <laughs> so no. they said, That completely it. defeats the purpose. <laughs> Did we all just read the same fucking thing? Like, what? So they said, this, uh, screw it, we're going to publish it anyway. So they published it, and it was the last comic they published. You know, oh, uh, you know from what? I'm glad they published it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of stuff that was happening behind the scenes. Um, and, uh, and there were other artists that wanted to show, for example, the Holocaust as that was becoming more mm-hmm. known and wanted to talk about it. And it was those publishers willing to push those boundaries that were willing to publish those comics. Mm-hmm. And, um, but of course they were getting squeezed out more and more. So by the time we get to the Silver Age and we get, you know, the colorful, flashy costumes that we think of today as superheroes, that stuff had been kind of swept aside. 
And there we have part one of the history of American comics and how it is a reflection of American history at the time. From its humble beginnings at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, with the editorial cartoon and small comic strips and newspapers, through the golden age, the age of superheroes, through World War II, and we ended it a little bit into the Silver Age. What a great transition point. Post-World War II, a lot of new things are going to be happening in American history and in American comics in the 60s and 70s. So when we come back with part two, we're going to be picking it up in the Silver Age, counterculture, Vietnam War, Watergate. Lots is happening in American history at this time, and it is huge for American comics. So I'm really excited to have you back to hear part two of this amazing series with Kevin Garcia. In the meantime, check out what Kevin is up to. All of his information and social media is in our show notes linked below. So please check him out, give him a follow, check out his books and what he is creating for comic books and literature. And hey, if you're not following us either, please give us a like, a follow. Uh, please make sure that you're subscribed and following on whatever platform that you're listening to us on. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, get money, get high, give love, and to truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Bye, folks. Bye.